Welcome, everyone, to the X Factor Files podcast. I'm Daryl. I'm Philip. And we are joined today by the incredible Steve Fox. Steve, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are so excited for you to join us. Um, I mean, I've heard you on other podcasts. I have desired to have you on. And <laughs> um, I found an opportunity to get you on for, I think, one of the best issues that we've read so far this season. Yeah, yeah and we've done a bunch. And this is a great one, I think. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Steve, I know you most and was first exposed to you from House of 92. And... Um, the great writing that you did for that title. And um, recently, I read your Infinity comic with She-Hulk as well, because she is one of my favorite Marvel superheroes slash superstars. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm glad that you got to write, uh, I think, a pretty atypical Jennifer Walters story, where she's not entirely happy with her client at the end of that. If you haven't <laughs> read it, listeners... Go do it. Um, Infinity comics are great, especially with the style of storytelling that you did in that story. Um, what was it like to write a She-Hulk story? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so that's part of the Strange Tales series on there, um, which they've been doing. If you've noticed, they've tended to line up with whoever's featured in the MCU at the time. Uh, so that was coming out around the time the, the show was getting started. But they're all supposed to be, you know, a little spooky, a little Tales from the Crypt, uh, tongue-in-cheek horror which is great because that's a lot of my intersections. Uh, you know, my work is often funny and, and I do a lot of stuff for kids, but I also love horror uh, and very adult horror. Um, so that She-Hulk story was a chance to, you know, mix everything up in the middle there. Uh, it was intimidating. That was my first non-mutant gig at Marvel. Mm -hmm. um, I had done a couple different X-related things by then. And especially with She-Hulk about to make her MCU debut, that was a, a tall order. Um, but, you know, I love the the Jade Giantess. Who doesn't? She's a funny, funny, fun character to write for. She's got quite a bit of range. Uh, so it was nice to give her a, a spooky little tale. And um, it was inspired by The Bad Seed. I don't know if you've ever seen um, the horror movie from, I think, the 50s. Yeah. Uh, yep. where, there, where there's a, a girl who's a little uh, less innocent than she appears. So that was my, my little nod to one of my favorite older horror movies. I have not seen that. Normally we do Spengoolie to catch up on like the campy <laughs> horror from the 50s and 60s. Oh, it's, yeah, not, it's the, not even really campy. I mean, it's legitimately... It's dark. Oh. He was, I, I don't, I can't, I think she was nominated for an Oscar for it, the child actress. Um, she had uh -huh. originated the role on Broadway. Um, and it's legitimately like a, an older horror classic. Um, not, not campy in the least. It's, it's pretty yeah. uh, sinister. It was a tonal shift from the hammer that I'm used to. Yeah. The hammer. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, before we dive into this issue, you have a new book coming out as of today when this episode releases Tell us about Dark X-Men. Dark X-Men. Well, speaking of intimidating uh, female characters to take on, uh, Madeline Pryor, you know, she's really high on that list. She's a character who's been defined by, you know, Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson and more recently Zeb Wells. Uh, getting the chance to meld the darker side of my horror interests with an X-Men team was really kind of a, a dream gig. I think I had done a podcast like a month before 
I got the offer where I said that the next item on my bucket list was to get to do like a horror book at Marvel. So when Jordan White, the X-Men senior editor, reached out and, and offered me the chance to do Dark X-Men, it really felt like, you know, the, the perfect gift from hell. Um, but it, it is taking the idea of Dark X-Men, which, you know, we the book existed in the earlier 2000s during Dark Reign when Norman Osborn uh, uh, helped assemble a team of X-Men for um, less altruistic purposes. This is taking the idea of Dark X-Men in a more horrific direction. So we have mutants on this team who are monsters who would never find themselves allying with mutant kind under other circumstances. And, and now that the Hellfire Gala is out and people have had a chance to see what happens at this year's gala, you know, it doesn't go too smoothly for mutant kind. And Madeline Pryor, after the events of Dark Web, after coming to terms with her relationship with Jean Grey a bit more, she sees that this new, darker, more um, desperate world for mutants is going to need a new, darker X-Men to go with it. So that's kind of the, the jumping pad for dark X-Men. And I'm going to collaborate with Jonah Scharf and Frank Martin on art. They're doing an amazing job. It's that's been the most reassuring thing about the whole process is just knowing it's going to look amazing. <laughs> like, we're, regardless of what any readers think about uh, my work, Jonas has been knocking it out of the freaking park. Uh, and our first issue also has a backup with uh, Nelson Daniel, which features She-Hulk in a quick cameo, uh, spoiler alert, um, that kind of uh, bridges the gap between Dark Web and Dark X-Men when it comes to the Limbo Embassy, which was founded at the end of Dark Web. Fantastic. I'm looking so forward to the entire series, and I'm so excited that I'm uh, speaking with someone who's now written Gambit. I was uh, going to say, I, I admire your Gambit poster behind you on the wall yeah. as we speak. <laughs> yeah, um, Gambit is probably my favorite X character, and I'm excited to see the direction that you can take him in such a darker title as well. Well, I've said elsewhere, you know, to to spoil it a little bit, when you put a character like Gambit in the middle of the horrible people Maddie has assembled, he is actually kind of the 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 golden heart of the team. You know, in, in the early 90s, in his earlier appearances, Gambit was the more roguish character and you weren't completely sure of his moral boundaries. But compared to people like Azazel and Implay and Zero, you know, Gambit's a good guy. Yeah, <laughs> we, we've true. seen him go through the fire. We've seen him really stand by his teammate's side and his his relationship with Rogue and how that's evolved. So Gambit is kind of the most heroic pe person on that team now. <laughs> and it's such a different way that Gambit is probably being utilized than the rest of the Krakoan age. He really has been a a good background supporting character and i'm so excited to see where you take him with such a different team composition <laughs> and and how he can really contribute to everything else that's going on with the mutants right now because we've seen like even with the titles that have been solicited everything is pretty splintered there's a lot mm -hmm. of different stuff going on in different corners of the world and the universe um with the mutants now so I this is such a cool sandbox that you get to take ownership of and can't wait to read the issue today. Thank you. Yeah, that's part of what's fun about Fall of X is that and really the whole Krakoan era, because you've put 
99% of the, the toys back in the sandbox, you can mix and match them in interesting ways. And like you said, you know, Gambit's popped up in some unexpected places throughout the line so far. So now to have him front and center on one of the X-Men books while Rogue is front and center in an Avengers book and the, the world population of mutants has narrowed quite a bit. Um, it's been really fun to have uh, my my favorite Cajun front uh, leading the charge here. <laughs> I know much less about all this. I'm relatively new to the comic scene. And so the last time I saw M-Plate was Generation X. Last time I saw Azazel was, is it astonishing with the team with Northstar and all the Bamps? It's like, it's been a hot minute. So it'll be very exciting and like something hopeful at least to come out of the hellfire gala of like oh at least we get to see these characters and find out what they've been up to and what they how they do on a team rather than just be like full in the feelings of grief and mourning of everyone else and you really haven't missed much with most of those characters because Implate hasn't had a starring role since generation x azazel oh. popped up briefly uh, in one other book since astonishing but only as a supporting character so i, I did try to dig a little deeper for especially with the x-men you have this long history of villains allying themselves with the team you know Sabretooth, mystique magneto emma frost so i wanted to put the dark x-men together from characters who would never join the x-men under other circumstances you know implate is not uh deep down uh fostering a heart of gold zazel no, no. <laughs> is not putting anyone else's needs before his own you know zero did not suddenly grow a sense of empathy so these are characters that uh, could only become X-Men in a very perverse situation. That's super fun. Yeah. All right. Are you ready to dive into Spectacular Spider-Man Annual 13? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I feel like I, I pulled a great one with it being spooky and gay. Yes, yes. And I didn't know this. So I reached out to you. I'm like, hey, we have a few titles like do any of these speak to you? And you went with Spider-Man because of mm. Spider-Ham. Um, yes. Because you've done a lot of great work when it comes to Spider-Ham. And um, I was like, yeah, that that fits. Absolutely. And then um, you read it, I'm sure, probably in the past week, um, as we did. and Oh, it, in the past hour. <laughs> as we did. As we did. Um, <laughs> and... Um, yeah, like you, I was very surprised at just the the gay turn of this book. Like, not even a turn; it was just fully gay. And yeah, it's, it it's so not lovely. subtle at all. Yeah, in it, multiple places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and dark and spooky. It is. Uh, I I am so glad. As I was reading this, I'm like, this book was made for Steve Fox to review the, with us. the little animal cards. You saw this and a little Fox card tumbled out and you knew yeah. this was the one destiny. Yes. <laughs> destiny, not just a character in the X books, yeah. lowercase destiny. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so we get started and like many of the annuals, I don't know if you've delved into a lot of them, Steve, but we have for podcasting purposes and um, it's like a 50-50 chance in terms of how much it focuses on the new character or not. It is polar. It is <laughs> all new character or it is sliver of new character. And it's also like, is the title character even involved in the story to any great extent? And this one, we got 
a, a dash of Spider-Man. He gets yeah. more than Silver Surfer did in his annual. True. Who was only there to fix a house and yes. be a taxi service. Um, um, but yeah. But this is a, very much leaning towards new character all the time. And the writer is J.M. DeMatteis, who did so much work um, at Marvel. And I'm so glad that he was the creator of Nocturne. Um he also created, I guessed it over on Grey Malkin Lane, White Rabbit. Oh, so yeah. um, he is longtime Spider-Man stalwart. And this gives him an opportunity to really break out and tell a different sort of story. So we get Nocturne's introduction in a rather extensive prologue. It's so good. I loved everything about this. Like the range of the characters we meet Angela Cairn she we find her mourning the loss of her partner and oh it's ambiguous is it her <laughs> um, police partner or is it her life partner and the clues all point to both yeah there are multiple pictures of them together on the wall on top of the dresser it's it's very overt that um Angela is a lesbian she lost her partner when we had an attack from Vermin in Spectacular Spider-Man 178. So Vermin went crazy and killed a whole bunch of NYPD officers. So Angela's a detective. Her partner was a police officer and got killed. And she's depressed. Who can blame her? Like going through the motions, hiding all the more vulnerable parts from her cohort. And also addressing the intersectionality of her character as a Black Indigenous woman in the police force. Like, that's a wow right there. That, it's a lot of different identities that you have going. That she carries with her. So, like, Steve, what did you think in these opening pages as you're reading her backstory? So, reading comics from this era, I'm always intrigued by how much the art form has changed I and mean, just starting on the basic level of how much text there is in this comic book you know if I were to turn in a script like that today I would get like laughed out of the room <laughs> it's just not done in the same way the panel density the amount of narration and it's not a good or a bad thing it's, it's just different styles and approaches and I really miss this kind of approach at times uh, because you know this this annual is 64 pages and it's got what five stories in it but it feels like you're reading so much more because J.M. DeMatteis has so much space to put things in and put this context in. Today, if you were to do the same story with Nocturne, it would be a four to five issue arc probably. <laughs> and you would yeah. like tease out her history and, and all this context and everything else. Um, and of course, there are the, the, you know, the moments that stand out a little more dated, like you mentioned the caption where she's explicitly said, it's hard enough being a woman, but a black woman with Cuban and Native American blood in me. Like we're really kind of speed running her her sense of context here. Uh, but it is impressive how close to explicit he was able to get with her being a lesbian um, and and mourning her partner. It's it's hard to even say this is under the surface. It's just short of her saying, I'm a lesbian. Like yeah. Yeah, photos together in, in bikinis and a photo together in their uniforms looking longingly at each other so it's really their front and center um, I've always been a fan of of Demetrius's work uh, 
I don't know why in the Spider-Man world uh, it, it seems like creators don't get the same era-defining memory that happens in the X-Men world. Like we all talk about Claremont, Morrison, et cetera, et cetera. But J.M. DeMatteis is, you know, one of the defining Spider-Man writers, but you don't hear about him discussed in the same way. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure why, but I'm a big fan of work he's done on stuff like Moonshadow and, and outside of superhero comics. So it's nice to see those approaches uh, kind of jumbled up here. And also talking about the density of text, you know, this is situated firmly in a vermin storyline that's going on in another in the ongoing book. Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't miss anything for jumping in here because he has the space to give you everything you really need to know. Yeah, the exposition is great i enjoyed the completeness of it and as someone like in general jumping into comics and one of the things we would talk about with the annuals like will this draw new readers with who won't be so overwhelmed by the immensity of the universe it does a good job of sort of parsing it down and like here's a sliver here's a complete thought about that sliver and makes it super accessible yeah and it's it's hard to introduce a new character. You know, I've gotten to do it a couple times. Uh, and, you know, most notice, notably probably Web Weaver. And you have a short amount of time to give readers enough exposition to understand who they are and to want to see more of them, but not to make a reader feel like they're reading a Wikipedia entry. So right. it's, a, it's a difficult art form. And I think this annual does a, a solid job of it. As a writer... If you were tasked with one of these, oh no, how many issues? 27. There are 27 annuals this year. <laughs> and every single one of them had to introduce a new character. How would you feel? So editorial comes to you. They're like, your ongoing book. Okay, great. You have some plans. You need to come up with a new character. What would your gut reaction be right off the bat? Well, one of 27 is not good odds for a character sticking around. I think the key, and and this is something I can speak to from experience, is that you have to know where they're going to show up next. And from my reading, it doesn't sound like Nocturne showed up for a little while. Um, she's only had a couple appearances after that. But for instance, uh, when I'm good friends with Steph Williams, who's another writer working at Marvel right now. And she got to introduce a new character in the Pride issue this year. And we knew shortly afterwards that that character was going to get an Infinity comic. So, you know, we know where someone's going to head. When when um, last year, Charlie Jane Anders introduced Escapade, she mm-hmm. knew she was going to get to take her over to New Mutants. So I think it's important to know where that character is going to show up next, because that's really how you start to firm someone up. So if I was tasked with introducing a new character in an annual I would want it to be someone I knew I could take into the ongoing story and and give a real role. I don't think you do a great service to a character by making them up and just kind of casting them into the sea. Which a lot of these were cast straight into the sea and some of them sunk all the way to the bottom. That's one of the reasons I wanted to use um, Carmen Cruz in Dark X-Men. She was introduced in Children of the Atom, and I'm good friends with Vita Ayala, the the writer from that book. And Vita went on to do New Mutants, but they had to leave for a couple different reasons before they could bring Carmen into the book. So I wanted to, you know, bring Carmen back and and give her uh, an evolution to her story and and do what you can to make a character stick. So it didn't happen with Nocturne, (laughs) but (laughs) she got a pretty good start otherwise. Yeah. 
So she is still trying to figure out where to go next. She goes to the cards as her mother taught her. Yes. And she gets a bat. Oh, a bat. And a sort of a more in-depth story about the bat than I was anticipating and what the symbolism (laughs) of it. Um, And all of a sudden we get a phone call with a lead for this new murder spree that's been happening the mutilation murder yeah there's a mutilation killer is what the press has coined it as going around murdering and mutilating that's all (laughs) we really get and that's all we really need it's true the mutilation is enough of a connection to vermin where angela is going to bring them in yeah she gets a hot tip from um one of her sources on the street that other people may not trust, but she trusts Herbie Fillmore implicitly. So she's drawn to a warehouse at 3 a.m. <laughs> like you do. And there's an ominous, uh, oh no. Ominous. Ominous. Oh, <laughs> I've been out in the sun too long weeding. Um, <laughs> figure in the background as we end that page. And uh, we then see poor Angela hooked up to this bat-looking throne with things stuck in her head, and then we see later on there's an IV in her arm. The shackles everywhere. Yeah. Not a good scene for Angela. (laughs) And we see this really disgusting character come out. It's total body horror emerging from the shadows. And... um, It's a mutate created by... Baron Zemo... Who does not appear in this story on the panel. <laughs> no, Baron Zemo not appearing in this book. I thought he was a Captain America villain. I know nothing about Pri- him. But primarily, yeah. Like he's got a crown and like wears a lot of purple and that's about all I know. It, yeah, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> and he's evil. So. Um, and then his son takes up the mantle and it's kind of confusing sometimes where that distinction actually happened. Because they dress Baron exactly Zemo. the same. Baron Zemo the first or Baron Zemo the second? So this mutate is... Who never gets a name, right? The poor thing. It's never named on panel. No, No, they don't get a name. Um, But they're the one that stays behind. Like all these other mutates went with a Dr. Katz and Vernon. Kafka. 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 Katz. (laughs) (laughs) Trapped in the 80s and early 90s. Um, so the rest of them had gone hoping to become cured and Mm -hmm. back to the normal selves. And we see that later on a different story about how thankful they are for that opportunity. But this one stays behind, loves what's become of them. And some has this weird connection to Angela. It's real creepy. There was some stalking involved. Yeah. And she's like, or they, we don't know the gender for the mutate. Oh, that's true. Um, they are like, oh, it wasn't Herbie that called you. It was me. I lured you here. <laughs> and this is like my little corner of the warehouse. You're still in the warehouse. But I made this, you know, sort of fancy, sort of Victorian. And Took over Zemo's lounge. Yeah. Slash study. And we're just going to zap you. We're going to make you a mutate and dig down to like, the deepest, most primal part of you. And that's what's going to manifest itself. Because that's, I guess, what Zemo did to all these other people. Drug something out of their deep inner psyche so that the outside reflected the inside. 
and uh, they throw the switch and angela is blasted with stuff and um it's true horror i mean steve what do you think of these panels as the the power is thrown into angela and the lighting i'm into it uh, so jerry bingham is the artist on this wasn't super familiar with his work uh and it can be tough to to come across with this much mood and tone and like seven to nine panel pages but this mutate who loves being a, a slime covered freak uh looks very entertainingly disgusting uh very asymmetrical and gross and poor angela goes through it i mean she she is is electrified and mortified and her eyes roll back in her head and she looks worse for wear the past tense first person narration kind of spoils that she's going to be okay but uh it is a horrifying sequence i really enjoyed it especially for a spider-man book and uh, as you mentioned the narration there are there's not a whole lot of text in this entire story it is a lot of first person narration from either angela slash nocturne or spider-man so we get there yes um and we see that the mutate thinks that angela's dead and just keeps saying what a pity as they change change her outfit and then go through this whole rigmarole of like giving her funerary garb just to chuck her into the ocean by the docks like i mean that's funerary garb with a corset because you have to go to your watery grave snatched for the gods yes (laughs) and even inside so what i noticed about the art as nocturne is not dead as you mentioned steve um she sinks down and then rises like the phoenix at the following night um as the sun sets with wings and glowing eyes and the inside of her sleeves sparkle like quasar's cape um there are stars <laughs> inside of them which is such a cool art touch and she and her hair to... is much longer and semi prehensile now yes yes um she got extensions she did <laughs> and um she i mean she has she snatched she has an extension she got her nails did she really like has the entire drag makeover. She, she, she does, does. Like, the flowing robes look flowing really robes. She's ready for the meet and greet. She is. <laughs> um and she finds that she can't speak. Wait, she doesn't find that out yet. No, well, she I thought she knew. There's a lot of screaming involved during the transformation process. And then yes. uh, um and she flies off through the mists. Yeah, good for her. I mean, I would too. Like, I don't want to be at the site of my sea burial. It's a, <laughs> I really enjoyed the setup of her journey of like needing to get to used to this new body, new abilities, and like exploring it sort of cautiously, but also finding joy in it. Like flying around seemed to bring her joy in sort of a, I am missing the word. She, uh, you relish in your own abilities, sort of. She heard the darkness sing to her. A shadow <laughs> symphony like a nocturne yes <laughs> and uh, that is it for our prologue so we get a solid 16 pages of introducing nocturne there is no spider-man no. in this spider-man annual it is <laughs> nocturne and then we get spider-man in a 
a story called Emergence. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. He gets a fan club. He does. (laughs) And it's all these mutates with Dr. Kafka. Not Dr. Katz. No. And (laughs) um, it's a discussion about Dr. Kafka trying to figure out, can I really cure them? Like, there's a reason why I could cure... Edward slash the vermin. Yes. It took me a couple panels until they said explicitly that Edward was vermin. And he was so happy with the results and is very hopeful that she can do the same sort of thing to all these other folks. And she has a huge lab thanks to Reed Richards because Reed's all up in it. Um, <laughs> he didn't, he barely appeared in his own annual, but he is off doing other things apparently in other corners of the Marvel Universe. You'd think he had was appearing in that annual in that Sue Storm panel, but no, that was just her at very strange angles. Oh, I know. Um, that's coming <laughs> up later this fall when people will hear all about Sue Storm, her boob window, and her very angular appearance <laughs> in the Fantastic Four annual. Um, so Spider-Man is like basically, oh, you're up to some great work. Um, I gotta go. Just checking in. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> And I think it's here, like he, his text boxes are pale yellow versus the pale blue of Nocturnes that we've seen. And he has a little bit of a monologue of, I went there to check it out vermin. I was gonna see if my spider sense would tell me if there was danger. Like Doc Connors has said that he's been cured so many times and hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Is this the same situation with vermin? Yeah. So he had to go check it out and gets zinged by nocturne yeah she's flying back home and he gets spidey sense and he's like whoa what an experience i don't know what that was but i should probably maybe follow my instincts it was neat that she was there not in a vengeance way to get to vermin she was there as like can this person help me I'm so new. What am I doing? I don't know if I want this. Um, And my assumption when she was there was that she was there for vengeance. So it was a nice like flip from the sort of expected motivation. Yeah. And you see her on the outside looking in for the first time. And that's going to happen later in this book, too, which really makes her seem continuing the theme of the prologue where she's very solitary and lonely and i think that's an underlying theme of this character is loneliness so she goes home to check out what she looks like you know there's a mirror there so (laughs) she uh, the look has been revealed yes (laughs) um and you know she's not entirely satisfied even though she has a killer outfit And she is sort of gives in and starts trashing her apartment. There's a fun dialogue moment of like, looking back, I gave in to insanity, but sometimes you have to, to stay sane. And like, let it all out. Yeah. Oh, what are your your thoughts on, as we start this Spider-Man story with an actual Spider-Man in it? <laughs> yes, a very enlightened way of thinking about sanity. Um, I was going to say to the, their narration Angela gets sentence case where Spider-Man's is all caps so that helps distinguish it but it does become quite a bit once you're getting uh both monologues going on at the same time 
the one one note I would have about this, if I were to dare to give Jan Dimitrius a note, <laughs> is that Nocturne not being able to speak is really just a contrivance so that she and Spider Man can clash. Because otherwise, it's just like, oh no, I'm I'm Angela. Like, <laughs> it's me. Don't worry. You know, yeah. that'd be the immediate thing. Uh, so her having no voice because it doesn't play into the character at all. It's not like it's related to her powers necessarily. Her powers are already kind of a, an interesting little grab bag. So that's classic comic book, like creating a hurdle so that you can later jump the hurdle. And from what I can tell in her future appearances, she just talks like she gets she she rediscovers her voice. Yes. Oh. Much like Ariel. Um, yes. She she gets her voice back. So oh, the one thing. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I imagine this whole future for her of like honing her empathic abilities, like sort of the inverse of Luxana Troy, who we love. I hope everyone also loves Luxana Troy from Star Trek. Um, But using like that sort of telepathy, but not quite with her hair to communicate would be a really interesting mechanic, but also probably difficult to write. So I don't know. I was looking forward to it. So I'm kind of sad that she gets her voice back. Yeah, I think she learns how to speak again. Um, but I was going to say the one thing that did throw me, uh, you know, we've mostly had Angela's narration so far. Spider-Man, so he's one of the characters where I most love internal monologue because it's not always my favorite tool. Like I don't I do not do it in most of my books. Um, but it's past tense here. And it's weird to read Spider-Man thinking in past tense. Normally when he has internal monologue, it's present tense. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so all of this being past tense did throw me. And I don't know if, if Demetrius did it regularly or if he's just doing it because Angela's is past tense and it was weird to have conflicting tenses sometimes yeah. in the same, same panel. Um, but it, it, it was interesting how such a small choice changed the feeling of uh, hearing Spider-Man think to himself. Yeah, and you really do get the feeling from how everything is narrated throughout that you're reading something that's happened in the past. That yeah. um, this isn't a present story, it's them telling a combined story leading up to some sort of present. Which is also a classic way of introducing a new character is to tie them to the past somehow or how you know you introduce them already along their journey and then fill in the blanks so maybe that was part of the choice too but i i, I got like two two uh uh captions in i was like wait a minute something's wrong with spider-man <laughs> <laughs> this is not how he's supposed to think out loud to me yeah and uh, as you mentioned we get the case of mistaken identity comic book book fight um it goes on for quite a while and she's getting more and more agitated. And as she does, more powers manifest themselves aggressively at Spider-Man. So not only does she cut him up, she got those claws. Yeah. Um, she's got that prehensile hair because we're like Medusa and starts choking Spider-Man out. Yeah. And he breaks free and like, it's, I don't know. I like Nocturne's internal conflict of like, I'm actually okay with him breaking free because I didn't. I don't actually want to kill him. I'm not a fan of him, but mm. <laughs> like these, I'm having trouble writing in these new powers, so I don't kill him. And hits him with a blow worse than a physical blow of like all this pain and anguish just like dumped into Spider-Man's head via her hair potentially. And then she's or just like, a beam. Who knows? 
Well, you know, fam- famously, bats' uh, claws, wings, and the ability to manipulate their hair and, and share their thoughts. Yes. 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 Um, and then she's like, this is too much for me. I got to go. And she flies off, but not before he flings a tracker right onto her, which I hope it doesn't do anything bad to that outfit. because <laughs> it on- just drags down a sleeve or something yeah. too much. Like, this doesn't flow like it used to. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and she's like, if I stayed, there's no telling what I would have done. He goes into Angela's apartment thinking he's going to find her dead body. And he's like, oh, I'm so glad that I don't have to deal with a corpse right now. <laughs> and he sees the cards on the ground and the spider and the bat are on top. The spider is on top of the bat. Is this, there's been a couple of very narrow panels before this. Um, and in the future, I think there'll be some sort of diagonal across the page ones and i thought i don't think i'd seen that much in the books that we've read so far from 93 Mm. like where the normally everything is very rectangular and then this issue you get sort of rays coming down it flows in a different shape than just like plain old rectangles on a page i thought that was neat yeah uh the design uh, really does keep you flowing along too. I mean, panels are designed in a way to lead the reader from one point to another. And uh, with these, you get so many panels on each page that um, there's a lot of action that they're cramming into the storytelling just via the art as well. So not only are they relying on a lot of words, it's very text heavy. But as we go to where Nocturne is visiting the mutate again, you get a lot of storytelling just with the art. If you don't look at any of the words on the page where she returns to the warehouse, you still get what's happening. You understand exactly what's happening and how the mutate is taunting. And reacting. Yes. That's also, you know, so these heavily paneled pages have fallen out of favor uh, broadly. You know, normally... Uh, an average uh, mainstream comic today, it's like three to five panels per page for the most part. There's still folks who go higher. Ben Percy, for instance, it's kind of deceptive, but if you read Wolverine or X-Force or Ghostwriter, Ben almost always does seven panel pages um, and he breaks the action down that way, but he's kind of an outlier that way. The the nice thing about these really text heavy pages is that then when you have those moments of silence when you have the the panels that are only you do really feel that contrast uh, uh, in the different storytelling choices um like zooming in on the the flashcards the animal flashcards mm-hmm. one of the few things uh that are visual letdown in the issue is that the flat the the uh esoteric animal cards that are like somewhat tarot-y are just like <laughs> simple illustrations of animals on an all-white background <laughs> like it's yeah. not the most heavily designed thing um and it, it which is in keeping with like the the 70s through 90s uh, exoticism on display in a lot of superhero comics where like mm-hmm. native americans or asian characters or similar uh you just kind of gesture at the the exotic differences and in, in arcane nature of things that the writer has no actual understanding or nuance of so this uh native american cuban black woman has some sort of animal flashcards with a, yes. with a, re- a relevancy that we won't go into yes um we don't get an explanation of how these are used aside from like because oh, there is not 
<laughs> oh, there's a bat. Interesting. Like that's where it stops. Where it is like, a bold, a bold choice to take on a bat as a character theme in comic books. Yeah. <laughs> like, in 1993, to say, you know what's going to inspire my new character? A bat. No one's done that before. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, back at the warehouse, we get another fight. We see that the mutate can take on the form. It's a shapeshifter. So Which now makes so much sense on how they stole Herbie's identity to call in that tip at 3 a.m. at the warehouse mm-hmm. to make it actually sound like Herbie. Because over the course of this fight, like the mutate's face begins to transform, like even her voice or their voice turns into Angela's voice. Um, it's a lot. Spider-Man shows up and, of course, sees Nocturne attacking someone that looks like Angela. So, uh, And I thought that ruse would go on for a whole lot longer. But he breaks up the fight and with this empathic transfer ability that Nocturne has, she sort of projects the essence of herself to Spider-Man and Spider-Man instantly gets it like with a big crocoom mm-hmm. roundhouse <laughs> probably um, the, the only panel in history of spider-man punching a naked black woman across the page <laughs> true oh. um the mutate then transforms back into just a naked mutate um n- which I guess is all right because it's a mutate so <laughs> the the nudity doesn't matter as much and then Nocturne wants to finish the job. And Spider-Man's like, no, you don't. And just kicks Nocturne upside the head. And breaks up the fight and convinces Nocturne slash Angela, like, you're a police officer. Come on now. You know <laughs> that we need to put this mutate on trial. And... um Nocturne's like, oh, I guess you're right. Sure, let's go up on the roof to talk. Oh, I might have missed it. I thought it was more of, like, with this battle within herself, like, Spider-Man is appealing to that smaller side that's saying, let justice be meted out by the courts. I thought it wasn't versus, like, a full persuasion. It's, like, right here that there's something in her enemy's eyes there might be a little glimmer of hope there. Maybe? I don't know. I didn't get hope, but there's some sort of kindredness that she feels like, yes, they are sisters now, in some perverse way. Also, the mutate was saying, you know, go on, kill me, finish this. So I think Angela's intuiting that the mutate's uh, despicable actions are are an extension of self-destructive impulse as well. Fair. A little pop psychology going on in between the panels here. So uh, Angela flies off, which seems to be like her favorite thing to do. And I can't, (laughs) which I, if I gained 11 foot wings, I would fly off too. But only it's good for that. You got to make a dramatic exit. I I do like how the 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 bottom part of the robe is just always shadowed, so we don't really know like what the undergarment situation is <laughs> as, she, <laughs> as she disappears into the skies each time. And it gives uh, Spider Man a bit of a self reflective moment as well to uh, 
basically close the loop on their shared story. And I think this is the last time that Spider-Man appears in his own annual. It's true. But it was such a good <laughs> moment. Yeah. Uh, like, of all the pain that this suit has brought me, I'm still glad that I'm Spider-Man. Like, becoming the person I was destined to be. And now Nocturne is on this journey to become the person that she is destined to be. That may not be all that bad. I really liked it. Yeah. What did you think of Spider-Man's part to play in this? I I enjoy it. I mean, Spidey, the, the thing that makes him so fun to write, um, and the thing that makes him such an enduring character is that his core drive is that easy to sum up. You know, like his life is hard. He has a great amount of responsibility, but he chooses to keep doing it because that's what's right. So he is the kind of character that can play that really, you know, quick dip in and out role. And you can still get across like the core driver of why people like him so much. Um, it's funny if you think it out too much. Like, yeah, it's hard for Spidey. He puts on a mask and then otherwise he's really smart and cute and, uh, you know, friendly and has a normal life. And Angela's a giant leathery uh, flying night lesbian now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, aside from those things, they're pretty similar. <laughs> um it's fun it's it's nice that he can kind of glance off her but like i said before if they really wanted nocturne to stick around probably would have found other ways for her story to stay entangled with spidey's for longer than this quick cameo mm -hmm. and i and do wonder too because we you know we we go on i know we're going to talk about them, but we go on to get mm -hmm. a couple more short stories with angela in this issue and i wonder if that was like a mandate that they needed to be several shorter stories versus like one one story for 40 pages or something i don't know not not in our reading it is all over the place yeah. um i think it was uncanny x-men which is an episode coming up later in our season after this episode where it's the entire book it is one story with executioner Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so that story goes the entire annual. Yes. And New Warriors is the whole thing, but that was because it was part four of four that they were just like, oh, number four is going to be the annual. Yeah. And Fabian Nicias is like, well, I'm not really creating a new character for this, but you get a new wish character in it. He, he was new in the first part of the four. Yes. Listen, um, Fabian was writing half of Marvel Comics at the time. So he had some slack. He, he really was. So I think he had um the capital there to be like you know what i i'm sort of sticking on theme with this one um if and fabian then, and scott labdell had caught a cold at the same time marvel comics would have gone out of business like <laughs> there, there was nothing else at the time so and then you get to an annual like daredevil which um in a later episode this season we're chatting with gregory wright who wrote that annual you look at the cover, and the cover is inspired by the backup story, not by the main story at all. So <laughs> it is whatever the writer really wanted to do. And it seemed like J.M. DeMatteis wanted to tell several stories with Angela and not just focus on one, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. I think it gives us a different dimension because we're heading into um, the third story of this book. Um, or technically second, if you look at the uh, table of contents. So we had the prologue, mm -hmm. we had the Spider-Man portion. 
now we're headed into Through the Window, which is Nocturne getting a little bit more of her powers. And it's it's misleading because you see a little bubble that says end on page 40. Then you launch right into some panels. Without a title or a splash or anything. Yeah, before <laughs> you flip and there there it is. Yeah, It says Through the Window. But first there's a hate crime. There is a, a straight up hate crime happening to a gay man who's getting the ever-loving shit beat out of him. Um, and... And pretty straightforward in the narration, too, of, like, uh, broken ribs, broken nose. Like, they're... In the panels, they sort of lay out, like, this guy's getting this not beat out of him. And um, it, it's very 90s in terms of how it's phrased. It says... Seems his lifestyle choices didn't please them, which is just saying this is a gay guy getting beat up and hate crimed. Yeah. And Nocturne. It's not, it's not subtle at all. And I really appreciate because this is what a year before North Star. North Star was 94, right? That he comes yes. out of the closet. And yep. This was 93. So it's, I mean, it's fairly explicit for the era for a Spider Man comic. And yeah. it's, it's telling that the first story he wanted to tell with her on her own after she got powers was saving someone from a gay bashing. Yeah. And we see her hair whip from out a panel and <laughs> grab one of these thugs. I mean, I love a good hair moment. And it is choking this guy out. She, we see him limp in the next panel. Um, and this other person rocking a headband, like he's trying to be silver sable. <laughs> he wishes he wishes he was silver sable and she lays into him it's great yeah and it i think it's just really powerful is this where you got emotional was it this story no i did have an emotional moment but it's coming up and okay. she so she picks up this kid brings him to the hospital sort of observes through the hospital window narrating all the while and doing this action seemed to bring her some amount of peace and like satisfaction and like using her powers for the greater good in I her feel own like I'm way a lot like there's a lot of text and i feel like i just summarized it in a very <laughs> too no, brief but, way I mean... You got it, though. It, it is touching. And she says, you know, that boy is so much like myself. So, you know, he's really underlining like, hey, this was a gay kid getting beaten up. Angela's a lesbian. Like, we all know you guys can read between the lines here. Um, is this the only place she calls herself Nocturne? Is this the only place Nocturne appears in the story where she says, of course, I had no voice. I lost that the night Angela Karen died and Nocturne was born. Is that it? I, th I think, think so. Because so. the only other reference was the music yes like it's a sad that dark... it was listening to before she a sad dark symphony yep. oh that's turn. right yeah yep that's uh, that's one of the fun that's always the goofy thing about these annuals that need to introduce a lot of characters and, and dc has done this over the time too is like having to speed run the uh the name and and all of that like Oh, I'm I'm a private citizen who suddenly had something transform them and I shall call myself Razor fist, or you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> those have to happen really quickly in, in all these instances. I mean, I wish if I had a transformation like this, I'd come up with a. I like the name Nocturne. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've spent choice. like 
10 years trying to think of what my drag name would be. So I don't think I would like have something <laughs> on the spot if I suddenly got superpowers. I would just right. have to hope I got transformed into like a specific animal. Be like, okay, I'm the serval because I'm a serval. Like <laughs> it needs to be handed to me very easily. I'm not going to get it on my own. It's true. If someone asked, I'd have two options and my brain would switch from one to the other mid word and it would just make no mm -hmm. sense whatsoever. It'd be like one of those <laughs> bad early 90s Marvel names. Yes. Blood Wraith. We oh, see you, the Blood Wraith. Column A, column B. <laughs> yes. and like, yeah. Yeah. Your month and day of your birthday is your new Marvel name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we see Nocturne fly home to her childhood home. She is flying across the moon, which is a beautiful image, too. Mm. Here for that. It's very gargoyles. Right? Yeah. I didn't <laughs> even watch the show. Oh, and isn't it also An Angela? Isn't there an Angela in gargoyles? Am I making yeah. it up? I think you're right. Oh, voiced by someone famous, but I don't know who it is right now. I think that's Marina Sirtis. Yes. I think so. Another Troy oh, yeah. connection. The female gargoyle who looks like the main gargoyle is named Angela. So it's kind of a, she's got the wings and everything too. Nice. And she sees her mother because of course they believe that Angela died because her apartment got wrecked by yeah. her. Um, and I loved how when Angela's on her way home, she's setting up like, I will check in on my mom. Like she's always this vibrant, like youthful woman. And when she gets there, she sees her mom maybe as she is rather than like how she had thought. Or her mom is just drugged down by grief and has grief does age a person. So she sees that her mom is going through mementos of Angela's life and crying and she falls asleep. Um, because the last thing that she was holding was this earring that she had carved for Angela. From a bison bone to symbolize like where she's been and her pride and her identity and like to keep it as a source of strength. And I feel like the earring is sort of a metaphor for their relationship in a way, because it says that it's been a long time since Angela has been home and seen her mom. And with this earring like she doted on this earring and then she lost it for a while mm -hmm. so she doted on this relationship with her mom and then life got busy and after her mom falls asleep she pops in gently caresses her face <laughs> and <laughs> takes the earring yes but in a sweeter way than sound like when you caress someone's face that sometimes sounds kind of creepy but oh. this is like this okay. is a very tender moment this is where i kind of got teary of like that empathic projection ability of hers she just surrounded her mom with all this love and warm thoughts and it was a very beautiful moment mm -hmm. like although if you imagine the mom waking up to see like claws <laughs> caressing her face and a, a winged <laughs> red-eyed figure standing over her i'm not sure it'd be as sweet <laughs> but if, if she's sleeping it's somewhat better <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what, you know, as for all the, the crap that the 90s get as being the era of excess and, you know, uh, action over plot and all that, J.M. DeMatteis is one of the writers who's very human-driven. Like, he cares about the the character development. He cares about the human side of these, these larger-than-life um, avatars. And even in an instance like this where, like, you know, we never find out her exact indigenous identity. He's he's kind of playing the the shallow notes when it comes to things like that uh, mm -hmm. 
it's still taking the time out to like, okay, Angela's helped a queer person. Angela's checking in on her mother, who's her source of strength. Angela's mourning her her dead partner. You know, those are the things that he was interested in with this character. And I think that that speaks to who he's always been as a writer in a very and, positive way. Yeah. And it's great. And she, Angela's seen flying off with the earring. Yeah. And she's like, I might return it. I might not. <laughs> In a few months, yeah, <laughs> but secretly, so and um, my mom doesn't worry too much. But like, I after I read this one, I'm like, I sort of hope that she has some sort of like character defining moment, and that earring is the material tangible symbol that she holds mm. on to that helps ground her and get her through all that, yeah. Like, I and, hope it came, comes back, a nice detail to plant, it is. Before we get into our last two backup stories, which do not pertain to anything we've read, um, <laughs> Nocturne, she comes back in two more issues during the Clone Saga of Spider-Man. Um, I read her appearances in both of those issues this morning after I read this issue, and she does gain the ability to talk, but it's really hard for her. Like It takes mm. a lot of energy and willpower to do so. Mm. And she she teams up with Puma and she's like, Puma's good again. And then Puma's not good again. Um, <laughs> like that's false. And um, that's about it. Puma turns bad. And then she is just sort of like going off again. Is this a clone saga where we get the Peter Parker clones? Like Ben Riley and Ben Riley, Peter Parker, Kane, someone. It, it's just the two. Oh, and well, um, I mean, not exactly, but that, that's the easiest answer, answer yes. <laughs> at this point in your journey. Um, <laughs> I'm still working on X titles. I haven't yeah. even... Outside of, like, the connections to House of M, I haven't done that much Spidey reading. So, um, and that's it. She shows up in the background in the first Marvel Voices Pride. And, like, she I was in... really really happy to hear that even though it's just a background thing the fact that someone remembered she existed and was heavily lesbian coded it's yep. nice that she got to be put in there and, and made explicitly queer so um that's her last appearance is in a six panel story one page story she's in the corner of one panel floating because she loves to fly um, our girl loves to fly so <laughs> love, love that for her <laughs> yes so uh, that's the last time we've seen nocturne i mean um hopefully she comes back in uh, some sort of meaningful way like i feel she has a lot of good in her there is good potential this, with this character like there's some of uh, the newly introduced characters where there's not a whole lot like face thief or assassin which is like okay yeah but her i feel like has can go off and do anything maybe yeah. as an actual red what are your thoughts <laughs> like versus well, just like random fanboy <laughs> i can see why she's challenging because she originated in a spider-man title she doesn't have a very close tie to spider-man the the parts of spider-man that she was tied to vermin and a, a very random baron zemo story are also not very prominent themselves she kind of solved her creation story in her first appearance. And even though she's like spooky coded, she's not actually spooky. You know, she like looks like a vampire, but she has nothing to do with vampirism. 
So I can see why she's challenging to like find the place for, but you never know who who will find out the right angle to do something with them. You never know what could circle back, um, which is not loaded. I didn't know she existed before this morning, so I'm not doing anything with her myself. But she's a, <laughs> well, she's an interesting he, character. Yet, yeah, yet you never yet. know. You never um, know. I had one one idea pop into my head. I, I won't speak it into person into no, no, person because no. you never know. But yep, uh, I can see why she's tough because she she is basically like a fake vampire, and it's like where, where do you put a fake vampire that came from a Spider Man story but doesn't have anything to do with him? That's kind of a, a challenge. Yeah. Uh, speaking of challenging, okay. we we have. Do you have another thought about well, Nocturne? Sort of. There, okay. our, one of our friends did a fringe show called Blood Nocturne, and it was very good. And so every time I saw her name, I'm like, Blood Nocturne. <laughs> there's got to be blood in it. And there wasn't at all. Yeah. But also if there's, I don't know how widespread that show might be, if it's just in the Twin Cities for Fringe or not, mm. but it was very well done. About okay. some lady who everyone's like, she bathed in the blood of young women. But you get so much more context in history and like maybe she was just framed so some rich dude could take all her land and her money mm. oh elizabeth bathory uh yes yeah so many so the tangent of course but so many of the stories we have of like historical monsters and atrocities there's always the asterisk of or this could be completely made up because some other politician benefited from saying this. Like, yes. almost almost all of them, ha- the, uh, I can't pronounce it right, but the Gil de Ra, or however you say his name, uh, a French guy who maybe killed and ate like 300 kids, or maybe it was just beneficial for some other rich person to say he did it. Um, that happens all over history. Yeah, it was so good. Blood doctrine. Anyway, sorry. Go okay. ahead. So we have two short oh, backup stories. That... Well, I was going to ask you guys yeah. a quick question, actually. Yeah. So you've read all these annuals. Did any of these characters stick around? Who's who's yeah. the winner? Did anyone? The stay? winner is the, the winner is Legacy slash Genus Fell. Oh, he came from this era. He came from Silver Surfer Annual Number Six that we reviewed with Demanda Martini. Wild. And he Silver Surfer just built a house and then because and like ran away he's like bye mom serval surfer will help you repair your house now bye (laughs) and all legacy did was get his ass kicked a couple times in that issue so very surprising that anything came of him um you also get executioner who would yeah you know appears randomly i just wrote him myself executioner he he does pop back up not in dark x-men and something else but and uh, uh, yeah, Adam X also came from uh, oddly X Force annual. So yeah. um, that that's about it. I feel like a lot of the other ones have been like sticking around for maybe two issues if they were lucky. A poor Empyrean. Um, his final appearance oh, was yeah. in a comic given out for free in children's meals from Hardee's. So, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I liked him. Like some of the ones that I liked did not. Nocturne. Did yeah. Not. They're they're often not bad, but that's why you really have to know where they're going to go next. Because if you yep. yeah. get them in something else and you don't latch them onto something else, then there, there's just no hope. They're going to be cannon fodder or, or background setting. Because what else would Empyrean do without the legacy virus? I don't know. I don't know. But now he's back. He's still alive. He's just back in time with some dinosaurs. 
Oh, fun. Yes. <laughs> Love that for him. Yes. <laughs> um, we continue with some questionable cultural storytelling in this issue. <laughs> I was completely lost with the next story. I have no context for who this character is. No, it and it's not their first up. appearance because sometimes there are other first appearances like Shard's first like on panel mm-hmm. um, is in one of these annuals. Yep. But doesn't count as the first appearance. It sort of does. Sort of. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we would hope that it would. Um, and we loved Rigor Mortis in the Ghost Rider annual of like caring for her little creepy worms. But yeah. then... And that was in the backup story. So if you want another good spooky read, um, go to Ghostwriter Annual from this year. Rigor Mortis. Check her out. We're big fans. They did her dirty. They did her real dirty. (laughs) She is uh, probably still alive too. So so we're talking about Black Crow. Black Crow first appeared where? Captain America, you said? Or Hulk, something. Oh, something. In in the 70s, maybe? So uh, Black Crow is in human form a native american character who is in a wheelchair and um visited by despair because despair is like uh this person has a lot going on and i can prey upon him i would this is not the first time i've seen despair's name written out but if you say it and told me to spell it, it would definitely not be like this. <laughs> and if you showed it to me and told, asked me to pronounce it, I would not say despair. Um, but on the first page, there is like a cool transformation from this cervid, fun vocab word, like in the Crow family, they're cervids, um, transforming with all of this blue mist. And what's a transformation without mist? Tell me. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> It just isn't. It's a misty issue. <laughs> and the, I don't know, the language was sort of like very flowy of like, you're in this dream state and then you come down and gravity starts to affect you again and you get a body. Um, but it was more eloquent than that. <laughs> it's just more than just you get a body. And uh, he wakes up and he's super sad and despairs there because reasons <laughs> despair the character <laughs> and despair the emotion um <laughs> is attracted to his emo nature and because he came to the big city and he was like my grandfather said that the spirits were buried when they made the skyscrapers, skyscrapers and the sacred lands have been paved over there's nothing for you there if you go to the big city but then despair is trying to prey on him and he turns into not the Black Crow that he was, but into Black Crow, the superhero. Yes. Um, and then the superhero transforms into the Black Crow that we saw before. <laughs> so there's a lot of transformations, but we can't call them transformations because it's not as much mist in these later ones. <laughs> Despair even transformed into this thing with three heads and a gigantic very large claw like and light tentacles disproportionately large um <laughs> so if you're looking for tentacles in this issue go to the first backup story oh. um black crow then discovers that the spirits were with him all along and they weren't buried they're still here and you just need to believe and then he can double himself and beats oh. up despair i do a like this moment where he sort of wakes up 
uh, is it John or is it James? Uh, the human um, consciousness. Jesse. Jesse. And it started with a J and has this conversation of like, hey, let's merge rather than me just taking you over. Yes, you're my host, but we're stronger if we merge as one and you can see the world through my eyes and you get this sort of neat, slightly psychedelic panel. Um, a pastel psychedelic panel. It, it is, is the early 90s. It's the, the pink and white and blue of the trans flag colors like that sort of motif in that panel <laughs> um like see the world how i see it and then they had this power-up moment splits into two punches despair in the face faces faces and shins <laughs> um, and calls down some lightning and like kicks despair's ass yeah, yeah. Uh, and despair had a whole plan like he had gone into this thinking he was going to win like he found the host for Black Crow. He was going to mess him up, spiral him in a terrible way. But no, he got his ass kicked. And that's basically it. And that's it. That, that's the story. And what nice moment of self-realization. Any reaction, yeah, Steve? <laughs> no, really none for this one. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, was, I mean, did that character ever appear again? The Jesse Black Crow? I don't know. I, I was not familiar with him. Even Nocturne, I, I have a vivid memory of having seen images of her in like some encyclopedia when I was a kid or something. Like she probably because she appears in the clone saga. Like I knew the image of the character, um, but I have never heard of Jesse Black Crow. And I'm pretty well read in Marvel stuff. I don't okay. I don't know what became of him. Yeah, I don't know. No idea. We can always look it up later. Yeah. But that's not fun. We have to just speculate without yes. doing any, any I research. speculate that he didn't do much since we haven't heard of him. The tough thing is that his... Obviously, Superhero Comics has a long history of co-opting indigenous culture with very, mm -hmm. very little um, research or thought behind it. Um, but I think the, the extra painful thing with this character is that he has an extremely science fiction helmet that looks really out of place on his character design. Yeah. So I can see why he didn't even make an impact visually. Um, okay, so apparently he pops up in Civil War, and that's it. Oh. Well, to, to be <laughs> I mean, to be fair, one of the characters we liked who came out Fantastic Four, and I won't spoil anything, um, came back and their last appearance was in Civil War, and that's it. Um, in a very is, disappointing way. So we didn't did really like her. A very high number of characters whose last appearance is Civil War because their spreads in the initiative where all these D-listers are listed as potential candidates for the initiative. Since uh, those 50 different states having their own team of heroes, mm -hmm. so many lost characters uh which I'm going to blame Dan Slot for. He probably looked them all up himself and then put them in the background of this uh, initiative page. So you have a lot of characters who uh, appeared in like 1992 and then the initiative and that's it. I sometimes, well, not sometimes, I almost always worry when, that, when there's these comics appropriating indigenous culture. And I'm like, did they talk to anyone? Is this like even remote is it like star trek voyager where they get someone but that someone lied lied and made <laughs> everything up 
No, I mean, I think it's a lot of good intentions. Uh, It's not done out of maliciousness, but you have to remember too, it's like the pre-internet era for a lot of people. Uh, You know, there there wasn't even like Wikipedia to draw on. Uh, There was was Encyclopedia. Exactly, Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, you you had to know what you were looking for when you pulled that book off the shelf. Like, alphabetically, know what you're looking for. Otherwise, hopefully the card catalog has something where it's actual cards. Yeah. Which those drawers were very satisfying, though, when you did (laughs) find stuff. And I think especially uh, people who grew up in the, the 60s and 70s, there was such a fetishism of Native American spirituality and mm-hmm. and and uh, Asian spirituality and aesthetics. So you can see it really prominently in Chris Claremont's work. You know, he used uh, indigenous characters and ideas, the demon bear, the adversary, Forge. Um, he did a lot of Japanese related characters. He made up, you know, help make up Mad- Madripoor. So I think that that's just like a, a moment in time that like American superhero comics drew heavily on those cultures while knowing very little about them because it was just everywhere in the American consciousness of the 60s and 70s. Even music like Mary Travers of Peter, Paul and Mary on one of her solo albums had like, oh, this is a song based on this indigenous stuff. I'm like, oh, is it? (laughs) But is it Mary? Yeah. Um, And speaking of Asian influences, our last backup (laughs) story which is by Gwen Herdling, um, it delves into uh, martial arts. And do, we have, do we have to? And, <laughs> can we just stop early? <laughs> and um, there's, there's a lot, there's a... There's no new characters. Like, I looked up Death, kill, Death Shrike? Killer Shrike. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Killer Shrike. Take two things, one from all column A, one from column B, Killer Shrike, put them together. And that's our person coming in to a karate studio that is not doing well financially and beats up some people who have jade amulets. But we come to find out that they're plastic and the power to become a kick-ass karate superhero comes from within. You don't need a necklace for it. I mean, it's very after-school special. I feel like we would have seen when we were little. And you know when one of the main characters is a small child that it is <laughs> it's going to be pandering. Yeah. And um pander it did. And Steve, you write stories for children um quite successfully that don't have to go into cultural tropes. Um <laughs> it's weird how you can somehow do that. Uh, uh, bravo to you. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. I try. Uh, this is also just a weird mind screw because it's the Prowler, but we the Prowler has changed so much in recent years because of the ultimate version of the Prowler being connected to Miles Morales. And I'm also pretty sure this is the same amulet that powers the White Tiger, who is not present in this story. So it's like a weird mishmash of uh, the, the context has just shifted so dramatically for these supporting characters that to read this now, it's like, what? <laughs> what, is, what does this have to do with any of these characters? Um, like, they are calling, like, one of the only, maybe, callback to a former issue is Deadly Hands of Kung Fu number 21, which is from the 70s, during that time when there was a huge upswing in all sorts of comics. That's where we got um, Shang-Chi from. 
And um, oddly enough, Jack of Hearts, his first appearance was in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, maybe 22. Really? Yes. Oh, you loved Jack of Hearts. I know. So, <laughs> um, so uh, listeners, you you really don't need this backup story. I will say, though, there are no pinups in this issue. They didn't have to fill pages with them. They didn't. And I, mean, I kind of miss that have. though. I love that in the X Men ones. This is a <laughs> yeah. lot of great art from that era. Yeah, like uh, we could have gotten a great Nocturne pinup or four instead of that backup story. There, the final backup stories I feel like have not been great. And we've—I don't know if the episodes have released where I've gone on this little thought path yet, but my belief is that. They were stories that were meant for Marvel Comics Presents that they had in a drawer, and they realized we have eight pages that we need to fill in this issue still. Let's throw in. And clear out that backlog. Yep. Like, we have this story ready to go. It's not doing anything. It's not going in Presents. We're going to chuck it into one of these annuals because we need to take up a bit more page space. That's my theory. It's possible. Uh, the other, I was going to say one more confusing thing about this story. I, is it set in the past? Because the kid in this is named Hector, which is the name of the first white tiger. Mm. But I don't know if he's supposed to have any relation to that. And there's nothing grounding this in the time period other than Killer Shrike and prowler i guess being the same age as they know maybe it's just a weird coincidence but it add added to the weird confusing feeling of this it's possible it's an inventoried story uh but sometimes it's just how the how things shake out anyway like I, people have uh, asked me if the web weaver story i did for the spider-verse issue was supposed to go in pride because it's set on fire island and stuff it's like no i it's just the idea i had was pretty gay <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's possible they just hit up this creative team and they're like what do you want to do it's like a dojo attack with with yeah the and i mean i i really think that might have been pulled from a drawer you have romita senior doing the breakdowns um and l milgram is doing the finishes like that if this is a contemporary story they did in 1993 that's pretty damn near the end of their active marvel careers mm. um I nope. haven't seen breakdowns in a credit before. I mean, in my limited scope, but... And Milgram, he stuck around for a while. Like, he did Soul Searchers in company with um, past guest of the show, Anna Maria Cool. Um, he did the inks over her pencils for Peter David's Soul Searchers and company. Didn't Gordon Purcell also work on those? He did. Um, so, I... Maybe I'll reach out to Glenn Hurdling and be like, so uh, <laughs> don't listen to this episode we recorded involving this story, but I have a question about it. I um, mean, because... mad respect to the guy. It's it's just oh, a story absolutely. that is confusing in modern context because all of the involved characters are so different, except for Killer Shrike, who has never changed. <laughs> and we learn the true villain here is capitalism as well. It's true. A relevant like, continuing theme. Yep. Yeah. It's it's either the patriarchy or capitalism or both. Yeah. All right. Any last thoughts on this spectacular annual that we just read? I enjoyed it. I think I picked well with, with nabbing this one. And I think you did too. I would love to see Nocturne 
figure out a place in the Marvel universe, but I'm at least glad she wasn't unceremoniously killed off, which is what often happens to characters like this. So yes, she stuck around looking for. Yeah, she you know what? She went to a pride parade. We can assume she's dating some nice uh, uh, demon fetishist somewhere and they've got a nice life off panel. Maybe she's unbothered living her best life. I think she is. That, I hope so. That's my headcanon. Um, thank you so much, Steve. Let's plug some things. First of all, we're plugging Dark X-Men for you. And I think that people, one, should read it. Go out today. Pick up the first issue. But also, if you have a pull list, get it added to your pull list. Um, go to your comic place of choice and say, put Dark X-Men. Because that matters. It shows that people are excited for it and want it. And that's what we need to show so that we get fantastic creative teams getting to continue on and write the things that we really love. So please do that. Um, Steve, can you tease anything else aside from Dark X-Men, keeping in mind that this is mid-August? Yes, I can. And thank you for saying that. Uh, You're exactly right. Pre-orders matter so much in comics. And not just for issue one, what two and three do is is what helps Marvel determine, you know, what should come next. And I'd love to work with Jonas again. I'd love to work with Maddie again, but that's only going to happen if there is demand for that. Um, Around the same time that that comes out, the X-Men Unlimited arc that I'm doing with Steph Williams, uh, Noemi and Pete, our artistic team, Uh, is going to be coming out, and that is six individual stories spotlighting this year's election candidates. So if you've read the gala issue, you know that these stories are not set in the present. (laughs) They are set in the past, Um, but they are our tributes to these six characters, Cannonball, Dazzler, Jubilee, Juggernaut, Frenzy, and Prodigy. Uh, And they're also kind of the closest that I've done to like slice of life comics with the X-Men um, online. People are always like, why can't the X-Men just be happy? Why can't we see them do fun, nice things? Well, for 36 vertically scrolling pages, that's what Steph and I brought to you. Um, so I hope folks check those out and enjoy them. And I wasn't planning on teasing this, but the other day someone tweeted at Jerry Duggan and asked, uh, will we see Rachel Summers' reaction to anything? And he said, you should ask Steve Fox about that. And I can tell you that Rachel does not appear in Dark X-Men. Therefore, okay. do with that information what you will. Um, and then the other thing I have on the horizon is Spider-Woman. Uh, Corella Borelli mm-hmm. and I are launching a new Spider-Woman miniseries uh, this November. It spins out of Gang War, the upcoming Spider-Man event. That was another reason I chose Spider-Man for this. I've been circling the Spider family, uh, Web Weaver, Spider-Woman, Spider-Ham. Uh, so Spider-Woman launches in November. And I believe just before that, the third volume of Spider-Ham comes out with my good friend and collaborator, Shadia Amin. So I've got spiders, I've got X-Men. And if you don't want either of those, I have literal spiders in a book called All AIs, which is an original horror story I did at Dark Horse with Piotr Kowalski, Brad Simpson, and Haas Otsmane Elhow. That comes out in trade paperback, I think in October, just before Halloween. Fantastic. There are so many exciting things for you on the horizon. I'm so happy that you are getting so many opportunities to write such different characters too. Thank you. To really to tap into whatever makes you happy and brings you joy as a writer. That's crucial, I think, 
to being a creative person. And I can tell that you care about the characters you write and that you're excited to write about them. It comes through on the page. Thank you very much. I, I am. And not to get too heavy at the end here, but reading a story like this where it's clearly a gay character, but you couldn't come out and say that. So many of my anxieties when I was earlier in my career was that, oh, you know, maybe I'll get a chance to do like the gay backup story one time or like I'll appear in a pride issue and never again. And so the chance I'm getting the opportunity to do all these different stories, ones that relate to my sexuality, ones that don't, I'm very grateful to have that that um, variety. And I'm, I'm glad that readers are supporting the opportunity for me to have that variety. And I feel like we've seen all eight eyes at our local comic book shop. We have. So as on the shelves, folks, go and grab it. Yeah. And yes. finally, Steve, where can people find you online if they want to chat with you about any of the projects that you have worked on or are currently working on? Oh, man, I hope by the time this comes out, nowhere, because I would love for Elon Musk to finally finish killing that terrible beast Twitter or yes. X or whatever it's Please. called. Um, but in the meantime, I am there at Steve underscore Fox, F-O-X-E. Uh, and I also have a website, stevefox.com. I keep very updated and a newsletter that I've fallen off a bit on. But, I, you know, especially if Twitter goes down, I, I will pick up more actively. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Steve. It's been such a privilege to have you. And such a pleasure. Yes. And thank we, you. we will try to drag you back in the future as well for something that is an unexpected delight, hopefully, just like this issue was. I'd be happy to come back. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. Thanks. Bye.